Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks, howdy, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today, I want to talk about the subject of instrument humidity and potential damage to your instrument. And we all can imagine how devastating that might feel when you take a look at your beautiful mandolin or fiddle or guitar or bass or dobro or banjo and suddenly discover glue joints coming apart or cracks in the wood or binding falling off. And these sorts of things could seem like a real catastrophe, and they could be if not dealt with. But I want to make the point here today that, like with many things in life, prevention is the best cure. So let's talk about how to prevent these problems. And before I really dive deeply into the topic of humidity and your instrument, I want to begin by thanking a listener named Charles. And I just want to make this personal thank you to him because in the last episode, I spoke about my son being in the school orchestra, learning to play the cello, and that they didn't have enough cellos to send one home with him to be able to practice. So it's sort of been on my wish list after about seven other things that are kind of stacked up ahead of it to uh, try to locate a cello for Jackson to play. And one of your fellow listeners, Charles, uh, was kind enough to send me an email and offer to loan us a cello that he said he felt guilty that it was just sitting in the corner of his office that I think his daughter or someone in his family had played it for some time, and then had moved on to other things, and the cello was just sitting around. And it was a very kind offer, and it sort of renewed my faith in humanity. Sometimes, you know, depending upon what happens in any typical week, sometimes your your faith in humanity is knocked down a few notches, and sometimes it's raised up. And I just want to say thanks to Charles for that kind offer that sort of reinvigorated my faith in the goodness of humanity. Along about that same time, I I guess, you know, when I, I should be careful when I say things on the podcast because there are good people out there who do react to those just like Charles did. And I think within, it was, you know, within two days of that podcast going out, I had two cellos show up here at my house, and I won't tell you the whole story of how that came to be, but uh, I basically have cellos coming out of my ears right now, even without Charles sending that one over here. Um, the, The problem with the cellos that I presently have is both of them are damaged and have cracks. And uh, the person I got them from said, well, you know, I know you do instrument repair and, you know, you know about these things. You can probably fix them. And I I took a look at them and I thought, yeah, I probably could fix them. 
So one of the two cellos is a half size and the other is a 4-4 size. And I have yet to determine which size is uh, correct for Jackson at age 11. Uh, so he, he's trying to determine that at school by, you know, asking the orchestra director and looking, I've told him, look inside, it's probably on the label, you know. He seems to think that he is somewhere in between those two, that he may in fact be playing a three-quarter. So I don't know. But the bottom line on the cellos is the half-size cello, and by the way, a cello isn't really any different than your guitar or your mandolin or your fiddle or your upright bass. It's a wood musical instrument. So it reminded me that the way these cracks appeared in these two cellos, one of them was broken on the back, big crack running up about two-thirds of the length of the back. The other one had a long running crack through the top, running parallel with the grain, as usual, and a split in the top that actually forks and made two cracks so if you tap on it you know it sounds very rattly and it's it's it, you could not possibly string these instruments up in their present condition unless you just wanted to destroy them so they must be repaired before they can be played so as i'm looking at that it reminded me that i should remind all of you to be careful with your instruments, especially, you know, I'm in North America, we're moving into winter, we've now had two pretty good little cold snaps, and, you know, we're getting into that time of year, we are in that time of year throughout most of North America where people are running the furnace, or, you know, lighting the uh, wood-burning stove, or firing up the boiler, or whatever. Uh, it's that time of year when we are heating our homes and that presents an extra danger to your wooden instrument. So I took the half size cello because it had the least uh, significant problem and I glued up the back. I repaired the crack in the back of that cello. And while I had the strings off and everything, and, of course, the sound post had fallen over inside it. Um, while I had it all apart, I really took a close look at it, and I found three previous cracks in the top which had been repaired in the past. So let that be some, I guess, consolation to you that if a crack does appear, they can generally be repaired. So... It had had some previous uh, crack repairs. But I, I will tell you, uh, in examining both of these cellos, I think the, the reason for the cracks is sort of twofold. Both of them had telltale signs of impact. Uh, the one, the, the half size that had, has had the crack running up the back, the crack was directly underneath the sound post and for you fiddle players you know exactly what a sound post is as would a an upright bass player 
but banjos don't have them, guitars don't have them, and mandolins don't have them. So for, for you folks, the soundpost is a dowel, a spruce dowel, that connects the top of the instrument with the back of the instrument. And it is simply wedged in with a friction fit. And it transmits vibrations from the top, the soundboard, to the back. And it also provides some structural, um, additional structural stability to keep the bridge from pushing the top of the instrument down. Now that's handled in guitars uh, with internal bracing. You know, you've, you've got all this bracing under the top of your guitar. And in the mandolin, you've got the two tone bars, which add structural integrity. And you also have the arching, the arched shape. So all of those go to help prevent the top from collapsing. But what I think happened with this little cello, the half size, because when I got it, it was missing the first string. It had strings two, three, and four, but it did not have string one. It was gone. And I have surmised that somebody bumped the cello, the bridge of the cello, against a door or a chair, or maybe it just fell over on the floor and hit the hit the floor right on top of string one, which I think broke the string, and then like a pile driver through the treble side of the bridge, the uh, transmitted that force through the top, through the sound post, all the way to the back, and split the back. Because the crack was directly under where the sound post is. So that's kind of my, how I Sherlock Holmes the... Uh, the situation. Now, I will tell you that with or without humidity issues, you could break an instrument like that. You know, you could have the perfect humidity and everything and, you know, bash it with a hammer and crack it or smash it into a wall or knock it over or sit on it or, but I think it's, it's made worse when you're in a low humidity um, situation. But we'll come back to that. So I repaired that first one, glued it up, strung it up, put a new string on the first string, and have been playing it a little bit. And I, I'm just, I've never played a cello in my life, and I, I'm not any good at all, but Jackson is showing me the correct fingerings and things. So we've got one working cello right now. But I don't have a case for it, and I don't have a bag. So that's a top priority right now. And as we talk about humidity, I'm going to talk about why a case is so important. Okay, the second one is just sitting on the back burner. Um, it's such a compound crack, and it's so long. I'm really spending some time thinking on it before I just start, you know, shooting the tight bond or the hide glue to it. Um, you know, I want to really think about what I'm doing before I tackle the second one. Okay. The, let's see, let me look at my notes here. It, it, it does help when I have some notes. So after I repaired that one, I was looking at the second cello, the 4-4 that had the crack in the top, and it too showed sign of impact. You could see where some hard object hit that cello right on the edge of the top 
up by the neck. And that's the initiation point for the crack. No doubt about it. It's as if you held the thing up by the neck and took a hammer and smacked it. However, like I said, I think that is made worse by low humidity. So before we talk about why that is so, let me just give you a little bit of the basics of humidity and wooden instruments. And I hope you aren't too annoyed by the dog barking outside the window. Um, I can hear, maybe, maybe you can't. It's the usual around here. Either the, the dog's barking or the chickens are crowing or something all the time. Uh, here's the essentials that you need to know about humidity. Humidity is the amount of water vapor, evaporated water, in the air. And what is commonly, you know, if you have a little weather outfit or a little humidity temperature indicator, one of these little gizmos you buy at Walmart or something, you know, from Oregon Scientific or something, you know, you've got a little temperature and relative humidity meter. That is giving you relative humidity. It's not giving you an absolute measurement of how much how many water molecules are drifting around in the air because it's all related to temperature because warm air can hold more moisture than cold air. And we all know this, that when it's really rainy and it's very humid and in the summertime, as you're walking around the house and stuff, you never get shocked and you don't get static in your hair and all that kind of stuff. But boy, when the, when the, when it gets cold, it also tends to get dry because cold air can't hold as much moisture. Even if the same, you know, amount of moisture is in the environment, the air can't hold it because the air is colder. So that's where this whole relative humidity comes in. Even if you don't change the amount of moisture available, if you change the temperature, you will change the relative humidity. Now, it's important for you to know why you need to sort of ignore the weather reports about relative humidity, because that is outdoors and your instrument for the most part lives indoors. So what you need to know is indoor humidity, not outdoors. You know, on a typical day, if you get up in the morning, let's just say it's a spring day or it doesn't really matter. Usually, in the morning, especially if it's foggy or if it's raining, you might go outside and the relative humidity outside near the ground may be 98, 99, perhaps even 100%. But when the sun comes up and the sun starts shining, the fog burns off, you may end up maybe at 60% humidity outside. Or if it's in really cold weather, in the winter, you could be 20% humidity outdoors. And then again at night, the humidity will rise and then during the day it will fall and back and forth all the time, big swings of humidity outdoors. But indoors, throughout that whole period of time, you'll find it's a lot more constant because the temperature inside the house stays a lot more constant than the outside. And you've got a lot of objects inside your house that 
either take on moisture or give off moisture, like your floors, like your sheetrock, like your furniture, like your draperies, rugs. You know, as, as a rug's laying on the floor, it's, if it's real high humidity, it may absorb some of that humidity. And when it's dry, it will give it off. So it sort of ameliorates or um, dampens the change, the rapidity of the changing of the humidity in a home. So, you know, just general rule, <laughs> any fool knows this, it's probably better for your instrument to keep it in the house than to keep it, say, out in the barn or just leaned against a tree or something. You know, you're going to have more control over the humidity indoors than you will outdoors. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing, what would be considered the ideal humidity? Well, consider this. This is an important fact. Now, this is the crux of the matter of why it is so important. This is a fact. Wood swells or shrinks in response to the humidity in its environment. So if you take a piece of wood, any piece of wood, and you move it from an area of low humidity to an area of higher humidity, that wood will swell. If you take that same wood and move it back to an area of lower humidity, it will shrink. That's why this can be a problem for instruments. A little bit of swelling and shrinking is taking place at all times whenever the humidity changes. So if you look at it seasonally, summer, really humid, winter, really dry, there is an overall change through the seasons to a typically drier environment in the winter, typically wetter environment in the summer. And if you live in Key West, it may just stay wet all the time. Or if you live near the equator. Uh, if you live in Saskatchewan, you know, it may be a much larger change. But big seasonal changes aren't usually what's going to break up your instrument. It, it could if, it, if it's extreme, but it's, it's rapid changes. So if you make sudden changes, the instrument can't deal with the sudden changes as easily as it can deal with gradual changes. Okay. If you didn't want your instrument to ever swell or shrink, you would want to maintain the humidity at the humidity level of the factory it was made in. So let's say, you know, your mandolin factory kept their humidity at 42%, and they tried to keep it, you know, right around 42 at all times, and they build your mandolin. Well, it is a certain size when it leaves the factory, goes in a case, gets put in a box, stuck on a UPS truck, who knows where it goes and what warehouses it sits in, and so on, and is delivered to your home, perhaps in Arizona. And your relative humidity might be 20% inside your house. So you get the mandolin and you take it out of the box 
From that instant forward, the mandolin begins to shrink because it's giving off humidity into the surrounding air. It's a 42%. Uh, it was living in 42, and now it's living in 20. It's going to shrink. Now, a little bit of shrinking, a little bit of swelling is not going to break up your mandolin. If you go from 42 down to 35, maybe even 30%, it's probably not going to break up because the instrument is a little flexible. Wood is flexible. It's not made of, you know, like a really brittle substance like glass or something, which is impervious to humidity changes. But wood has some ability to flex, as does the glue that holds the wooden parts together. Here's where the problem arises, is that wood does not change, does not swell and shrink evenly in all dimensions. So if you had a block of wood, or let's, let's just say a plank, and let's say the plank is quarter sawn and the, the grain lines are running up and down if you looked at the end of the board. Let's say you had the board laying flat on a table and you see the grain lines running up and down. Well, you, you can visualize there are three basic dimensions. There's the length of the board, there's the width of the board, and there's the thickness of the board. Each one of those directions swells or shrinks at a different rate. So the amount that the board swells lengthwise is less than the amount that it swells thicknesswise and is also less than the amount it swells widthwise. So these are all factors taken into consideration when building instruments. There's a reason the grain direction goes a certain way. But here's the problem with a glued together instrument. If you have your top, let's say you've got a mandolin top and it swells from additional humidity, it's going to get wider and it's going to get thicker. It's not going to get a lot longer, but it's going to get thicker, which is going to push your bridge up and make your action go up in the summer, in the high humidity. And it's going to get wider. It's going to try to spread out. And you hope that the glue joints hold and that the instrument stretches just a little. But that additional humidity puts tension in that instrument. If you bring the humidity back to normal, you bring it back to the humidity level that it was originally glued and clamped together, it relaxes again. There's no tension, no stress on the instrument. Then you take that instrument and you dry it by putting it in a low humidity environment. Now, let's say you're down at, let's just say 10% humidity, you know. The mandolin will begin to shrink. It won't shrink much lengthwise. It will shrink a good bit side to side. It will shrink a good bit thickness-wise. So you dry the mandolin out, the top shrinks, the bridge goes down, your action becomes lower, and the sides are pulling in on the instrument. And once again, you hope the glue joints don't fail. 
that glue it all the way around the edges. But there is tension. And the more you shrink that mantle and the more tension builds up because the glue is holding the edges. And if you were to really shrink one and put a lot of tension, side to side tension on that soundboard, and then just take a chisel or anything and just poke it and initiate a tiny little crack along the grain lines, it may just pop apart. Because it's trying to hold together, but it's being pulled. You follow what I'm saying? So if you don't ever induce this tension, you're less likely to get a crack. So secret is try to maintain the humidity of the instrument at approximately the humidity at which it was manufactured. And I'll just tell you what I've read and heard is that most people, most manufacturers attempt to maintain about 40 to 42% relative humidity in their shops. That may vary a little bit with, you know, where in the country they are, but that's, that's pretty, pretty good average. And the reason they do that is because that is the average indoor humidity for the continental United States. Most homes, they'll swing a little bit, maybe between, you might get down in the high 20s and you may get up into the 50s, 55 in the summer, but you know, the average is about 40, 42. So if you can maintain your home at that uh, humidity level, you will never have this tension which can result in failed glue joints or splitting of wood. And there's that additional problem where the sides, the grain is running in a different direction than the grain of the top. And perhaps the neck, the, the direction of the grain is running in a different angle. So if you glue two pieces of wood together and they have, they're not glued in the same grain orientation, they're going to tug at one another more than if they're glued together in the same grain orientation. Now, you, if you've built any instruments or examined your wooden instrument, guitars, mandolins, fiddles, you'll know that the top soundboard, and many times the back as well, is generally made of two pieces of wood glued, edge glued together, and then the top is carved from that. And there's a glue seam running right down the center line of the instrument. That glue joint is pretty rare for that glue joint to fail. It can fail for a variety of reasons, but typically that doesn't, is not where the cracks appear. Can, I'm not saying it impossible, but, and the reason that glue joint is pretty stable is because both pieces of wood are oriented pretty much exactly the same way. So both sides of the glue joint behave similarly. So it never really develops any tension there. But where the, where the soundboard is glued to the sides of the instrument, well, you've got grain turned 90 degrees to the top and it's curving around. There are all kind of different angles going on. So many times the, the first failure you will see in an overly dry instrument is a failed glue joint somewhere along the sides where the top joins the sides or where the back joins the sides. That's, 
the most common place for a failure. And let me just tell you right off the bat, if that happens, don't freak out. It's very common. Any guitar luthier repair person has seen this a bunch of times and it's pretty easy to fix. But you don't want to let it go. First of all, it's, it's, it's weaker. The whole instrument is weaker. So that, that separation, that seam separation, it's not going to get any smaller. It's only going to get bigger the more you continue to stress it. Same goes for a crack. If you get a little crack up here that's maybe an inch long running, maybe it's coming out of one of your F-holes, out of the little rounded end of the F-hole, and you see about a one-inch or two-inch crack appear there. Get it fixed, you know? Don't wait, because it's not going to get any smaller. It won't glue itself back together. But don't wait till it, you know, tears its way all the way to the edge of the instrument. You know, get right on this stuff. It's easier to, you know, fill a cavity, a small cavity, than it is to, you know, have your teeth pulled and put a cap in or something. You know, you know it's the same basic principle. So if you notice something, don't flip out. Do take care of it promptly and get somebody who knows what they're doing, who has done it many times, and you'll find it's not even that generally that expensive. It's a fairly simple repair to glue up a crack that is, that wasn't caused by like a sledgehammer bashing it. I mean, you know, putting Bill Monroe's mantle back together, that's a little bit different than just a low humidity crack or a crack caused by an impact on the edge, which by the way, that's why instruments have binding. Yes, it's pretty and it looks, looks good, but the purpose of the binding really is to reinforce the edge so that if you do bump your guitar against a table, the impact strikes the binding and is spread out rather than just transmitted directly into the wood of the guitar in one tiny location, which would be more likely to initiate a crack. So that's what binding does. It spreads out shocks. It also looks pretty good too. Um, but if you have an instrument that does not have binding, you should probably take a little more pains with it to be a little more careful about, you know, cracking the corner into hard objects, things like that. Now on, on fiddles, uh, the, they don't put binding around the outside. In fact, on a fiddle, the top overlaps the side slightly. It's sticking out there just asking to be hit basically but they counteract the potential of initiating cracks from the edge or stopping cracks by a little inlaid strip of, usually it's hickory, a little tiny little 16th inch wide strip is inlaid into the top. If you take a good look at a fiddle, you'll see that little strip and you'll see it's going cross grain. The grain is running linearly around all the way around and that little piece is put in there, aside from the fact that it looks really good if it's done well, it's to stop a crack. So if you did, you know, sharply strike the edge of your fiddle, the impact will travel to that little hickory uh, strip and be spread out to a wider impact zone. And with luck, the crack won't progress across that point. 
So that's the purpose of purfling. And you'll see that around sound holes on guitars. You know, there's the rings, the purfling rings. Well, they have a practical purpose more than just visual. They do look good visually. Sometimes they look incredibly good if they're, you know, very ornate inlays and so on. But what they do functionally is stop the running out of cracks or the running in especially of cracks from initiating at the sound hole and traveling into the main part of the board. Now you're, let's say you have a, a, a plywood three-quarter base like many bluegrassers do. Um, you're, or any kind of plywood, if you have a plywood guitar, a laminated construction instrument, you have a, an advantage there. You have a disadvantage in that they don't sound as good as carved top solid wood instruments, but they are far greater in strength and uh, resistance to cracks and humidity issues and so on. Uh, my poor old K bass, you know, looks like it's just been attacked. It looks like you tied a rope on it and drug it around a gravel road, you know, with a rope behind a tractor. The edges are just scarred up chips out of it but it still stays together and the reason it does is because the five plies of wood on the top and on the back are what's known as cross banded so that one layer the grain goes in one direction the next layer down it goes 90 degrees to that the center layer is back in line with the top the fourth layer is 90 degrees and so on that's how plywood that's why plywood is so structurally stable because it's got these tensions going at right angles to each other, and they sort of counteract each other. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't have glue seam separations and even ply separations in a plywood instrument. You can. Um, but they're a lot easier to take care of, or you could say you can abuse a plywood instrument more. This is why I question the, the logic of both of these cellos that I'm repairing are solid wood instruments. I question the logic of giving a 10-year-old kid, handing them a nice carved instrument. If, if those cellos were plywood, you know, the laminated, the cheap laminated construction, they wouldn't tear them up as easily. Okay. Now, I talked about how wood... Uh, swells with high humidity and it shrinks with low humidity. It's generally the consensus of most luthiers and repair people. And if, if you doubt me, uh, look in Dan Earlywine's book. Uh, he, this is stated, uh, he quotes like four or five different guitar builders in there on this topic. It's, it's the general consensus that low humidity is more dangerous than high humidity. So if you have to err, err on the side of too much humidity. Too much humidity does create its own problems, but it's, it's not as insidious as low humidity in busting up your instrument and causing cracks. Um, so bear that in mind. A little bit of extra humidity is probably better than, a little, than too little humidity. So how do you control this? How do you control the environment of your instrument? 
Well, let me, before I say that, let me tell you something else that is pretty well known in the guitar building, mandolin building, repair business. I've heard this said and written numerous times that instruments are more likely to develop these sort of problems in their first few years, within, let's say, three or four years of, of leaving the factory. And it's probably because there's a lot of things in the environment. First of all, the wood itself is absorbing uh, volatile compounds. Like when you glue two pieces of wood together, some of the glue gives off moisture into the surrounding wood area. Now, the glue may seem completely dry, but it's not completely dry for a while. Same thing with finishes. You shoot lacquer on there with lacquer thinner or whatever kind of varnish. Gradually, the wood is absorbing some of those volatile compounds and leaving behind that nice, tough skin that you want. Or it's giving you know, compounds off into the air through evaporation. And it may seem very dry. You know, you spray some lacquer and the next day you pick it up, it seems completely dry. But it is not completely dry. It may take a year. It may take two. It may take three before finally that instrument achieves sort of equilibrium with its environment, that it's not giving off anything. So the danger point, as, as an instrument gets older and older, it's less likely to exhibit these sorts of problems, you know? And hopefully, if, you know, if your instrument exhibits these sorts of problems very early on, maybe you're covered under some kind of a warranty or something. But, um, you know, usually if an instrument survives five years, ten years, it's probably going to be okay. You can, I'm not saying treat it badly, but you don't have to take quite as much pains with it as, let's say, the day the instrument arrives at your home. You just bought, I don't know, a mandolin from a well-known maker in Austin, Texas. And you live in Vermont, and the thing arrives on your porch in a box. Well, those first five minutes of when you open that box are probably the most dangerous time for that instrument. You know, they always say, don't open the box. Just stick it in the living room. Don't put it in front of a heater. Don't put it in front of the fireplace. Don't set it on top of a vent. And just leave it in the box. I know you're dying to open the box, but don't. Just leave it in the box. Let it sit there maybe a day, maybe two days if you can stand it. Then take it out of the box, but don't open the case. Just let it sit. You're trying to slowly acclimate it, both temperature and humidity, to your world where it's going to spend you know, the rest of its life. So if you can slow down these changes, and remember, as I said, temperature affects humidity. It's humidity that primarily affects your instrument, but temperature affects humidity. So you got to consider both things. So if you take an instrument and you leave it out in the trunk of your car overnight and you remember it the next morning and it was 28 degrees out there and you go, oh, crap, I left my mandolin out there. And you go out and you bring it in the house. Don't open that case. Just stick it in a closet and forget about it and maybe open it the next day. And if you do, maybe just, if you have to open it, you know, 
just don't shock the thing. You don't want to shock it by taking it from 28 degrees to 70 degrees in 30 seconds. There's going to be a big temperature shock, which can cause finish cracks, and there's going to be a massive humidity, relative humidity change at the same time. So keep it in a case. That's my biggest suggestion for you. I know people like to have their instrument out. They like to hang them on the wall. They like to put them on a stand. They like to leave them out where I'm. It reminds me to practice and things like that. But I'm just telling you, that is bad for your instrument. Get it out when you play it. When you're not playing it, stick it in a case and close the lid. And I would even add, snap the latches. Because I have seen a guitar picked up by the handle and a guy walking up the stairs, and of course the case wasn't latched, and it opened up, and the guitar, you know, bounced down the staircase. I, I mentioned that in the instrument horror stories thing. The reason you want to put your instrument in the case is because it slows down any sort of environmental change, either temperature or humidity. It slows it down. And the rapidity of things is many times what really initiates the damage. So if you can slow down the changes, you might be able to withstand a broader range of humidity without damage. But if you go instantly from 60% humidity to 20%, let's say in 20 minutes, that's like putting your instrument in the oven. You know, it may not withstand it. But if you can do it slowly, it'll take more abuse is what I'm saying. And the case makes it happen slower. The other thing is, with a case, it's easier to control the humidity inside because it's a much smaller environment. When your heat comes on and goes off and comes on and goes off, the air right around the vent is changing a lot in just a matter of minutes. But if your case is closed, that air is not blowing inside your case. So the humidity inside the case remains relatively constant. It's, it's, it's very much like a microcosm of the difference between your house and your backyard. Your backyard, there's a lot of changes going on, but your house is your case. It's the case for you. And you're inside that case, and so there's less change. Well, you take that down smaller, you put your instrument inside its case, and it's protected even more. Same goes for gig bags. Gig bags slow it down too. Any kind of case, any kind of gig bag. I would say maybe a cloth bag wouldn't do it as well, but it still will protect it somewhat. It's going to slow down the that uh, change of humidity, which is happening every time a vent comes on or a little space heater or whatever. Or you bring it in from outside. You played a festival and you, you picked all night in the summertime and it was really hot and humid. And then you bring it in the house and you run the air conditioner and the humidity is a lot lower. You know, if it's inside the bag or it's inside the, the case, it's probably not going to freak out and crack on you. Okay, just quickly, uh, some of the ways that, and I've already mentioned a lot of these, um, how humidity can affect each of the different instruments that we deal with. Guitars, mandolins, um, very, they're constructed very similarly in that they have wood bodies, wood tops, wood backs, wooden necks, wooden fingerboards. They're, you know, essentially the same type of construction. Uh, 
Humidity changes affects the action. Totally does. Uh, I keep a summer and a winter saddle for my guitar, and I swap it, you know, because it moves up and down. You know, the belly of the guitar changes. It's, it's seasonally. Um, glue joints, obviously, I already talked about where one grain direction joins another grain direction. That's a potential weakness because of the, the unequal amount of swelling. So glue joints and always the potential for cracks, which is my personal belief that, you know, the dryness induces the stress and then a possible impact may be what initiates it. So maybe what I'm saying is if, if it's really dry, maybe handle with care a little more because it's more brittle or it's certainly under more tension. It's like a spring-loaded thing. You know, it's, it's, it wants to let go. Well, don't give it a reason to. Just bring the humidity back to normal and it'll stop that. Um, that's the main things. Uh, of course, you know, Internally, you could have such disasters as internal bracing coming unglued because the bracing on the guitar inside, underneath, inside on the back and, and, the, and the top, the grain is not running in the same direction as the top. So they're swelling, they're expanding and shrinking at different rates. So if you expose a guitar to major extremes of humidity and you keep repeatedly doing that it's very likely you'll have glue joint failures of your bracing typically the ends the ends of the braces let go and if you tap on the guitar you'll hear rattling rattling sounds and they can easily be repaired if you don't let it go to where the all the pieces begin to deform and the top you know, in the back of the guitar gets a new shape to it. Typically, you know, a good repairman has done it a million times and he can reach his hand in that sound hole and repair those loose braces. But, you know, the way to prevent them is, number one, don't be bashing your guitar around, treating it poorly, and try to prevent these big humidity swings. Banjos, obviously the biggest problem with banjos is if you have a skin head. I mean, it's like an instantaneous reaction to humidity changes. I was, I was going to one time write a blog article, how to predict the weather with your banjo. <laughs> you can, um, I think you could do a pretty good job of like um, monitoring the weather just by hanging an old open back um, skin head banjo on your wall. Kind of like the old thing of the weather rock where you tie the rock on the string and you hang it on your porch. And if, if the rock is swinging, it's windy. If the rock is wet, it's rainy. You know? Kind of like that. I was going to do that with a banjo. Skinheads obviously react uh, a great deal. That's why they're using mylar these days. That's why nobody pretty much uses skinheads anymore because you don't have to deal with the humidity changes. Banjos are a lot more immune to these cracks and humidity damages because there are a lot fewer glue joints. Everything on a banjo is bolted or screwed together. I mean, there are some glue joints, especially in the resonator or the peg head overlay or the fingerboard is glued on. But the grain directions are similar in the fingerboard and the neck, so that's usually not a problem. You, you don't have the, the, the antagonism of the side of the guitar body 
fighting against the top of the guitar body. You don't have that on a banjo. Everything's kind of floating and there's a lot of metal parts in there. So maybe, I guess what I'm saying is you might be able to abuse your banjo a little more than you could your guitar or your mandolin or your fiddle. Now fiddles, they've got some things that are get affected pretty easily by humidity. Again, the action changes with humidity, just like any wooden instrument, the fiddle swells and so does the wooden bridge. Your pegs can get loose. The, you know, the tuning pegs, you might have had it in perfect tune. And, you know, you sit on the couch and you get up in the morning and like three of the pegs are completely loose and the strings just went throng, you know. Because the size of the hole that the peg is stuck in changes and the size of the peg itself changes. So pegs, you know, will change. Of course, that's easy to fix. You just poke it in and turn it. Uh, and you get the same issues with cracks, potentially, of low humidity or so on. Bow hair, just like human hair, horse hair, changes with humidity. It gets longer in high humidity. So if you put your bow in your case and you left it tight and the air dries out, that bow hair is going to shrink and it may pull the bow hair out from the ends where it's stuck in the bow, or it may warp the, uh, the shank or the shaft of the, uh, of the bow. That's why you always want to loosen your bow hair, you know, after you play, uh, cause it will change. And in fact, you could probably, um, make a pretty good humidity meter, a hygrometer out of a fiddle bow, I'm guessing. Cause you know, hygrometers, many times the inner workings of them that measure relative humidity is a little bundle of hair that pulls on a needle. That's how the old fashioned humidity meters worked. It was a little tiny bundle of hair that pulled against a spring and had a needle that moved. So as the hair shrunk, it would move the needle. That's how they actually work. So clearly bow hair is an issue. Um, it's pretty well known by, and I agree with this, that if you get too high humidity, instruments begin to sound a little tubby and not as crisp as they do when they're at their normal humidity. Um, now, whether or not that's the instrument or whether it's the way the air transmits sound vibrations, I don't truly know, but I can say for a fact, I believe it. I believe that, you know, an overly humid guitar will sound a little tubbier than a normal humid humidity guitar. Um, but you know, I was saying earlier that high humidity is less of a danger than low humidity. I, that's what I believe, but don't go to the extremes. Really high humidity is bad for instruments too. Not just that tubby sound, but a really high humidity environment can encourage the growth of mold, bacteria, things like that, which you may not see on your instrument because it might be inside your instrument. I mean, literally mildew may be growing on the inside of your instrument. Is certainly if you put an instrument in 95% humidity and left it there for a year, you know, there's no telling what might grow in there. And many times the finish can be destroyed that way. Same for glue. Hide glue can be destroyed 
at really high humidity levels. I think it's a mold that will eat the hot glue um, and weaken it. Um, I, I Just a, a perfect example of how way too much humidity is equally damaging was this old K bass that I play, the 49K. When I bought it, the man who had it stored it in his basement. Well, his basement was unheated and didn't even have a concrete floor. It simply had gravel on the floor. And we go down there in the basement to, I'm going to take a look at this base, and it's been sitting on its side with no bag for I don't know how many years. And literally the base was falling apart. The plies, the five plies of the top and the back, especially on the side that was facing the earth, was a lot worse. The plies were separating, fanned out like the leaves of an old ratty book. I could take, I stood it up and it was unglued around the heel and I put my hand in there and could pull the back away three or four inches and look down inside the base. The glue joints were just letting go on this thing. Around the F-holes, the, the little sections that, you know, as you come around the circle, there's that little point there, were fanned out like the pages of a book about an inch apart. I mean, the layers were literally just coming apart. This thing was just falling apart. It took me about four months to methodically glue that base back together layer by layer. I would do one layer at a time. And I only had so many clamps, so I could work on, you know, a 12-inch section for a couple of days, and then I would move my clamps, and gradually, gradually I put the thing back together. And I've not done that to that base again. So all that is to say that don't think humidity is, you should just humidify your instrument like crazy. No, just try to keep it normal. And there are humidifiers. You know, obviously the case is your best prevention because it just slows things down and indoor storage, you know, and perhaps buy yourself a meter. Go down to Walmart or Lowe's or something and get you a little temperature and humidity meter and put it in a central location or near the instruments, near where you keep your instrument. Just look at it every now and then. If it's 40, 42, you're good. If it's 35, hmm, starting to get a little lower. It gets down near 30. You better be closing those cases and bagging up those instruments. If it gets down to 20, you might want to go down to Lowe's and buy yourself a humidifier and start running it in that room and try to slowly bring it back up to the 40s. On the other hand, if you see 50, 55, I wouldn't really freak out over that. That wouldn't bother me at all. But if I'm seeing 70, 75, Maybe you need a dehumidifier at that point. You follow me? Like a room humidifier, dehumidifier. Um, so the little meters are inexpensive. I would suggest that you get one and kind of keep it around your instruments and just, just kind of watch. And, you know, if you stay between 35 and, well, let's say between 30 and 50, you're probably in a pretty safe range. And... Your, your skin will be happier, too, and your hair will be nicer. And, you know, a lot of things. Your furniture won't crack up and break up. It, you know, the, the old uh, straight-back chairs in our kitchen, usually 
every winter I do a little repair work on them because they, they kind of come apart in the winter because it gets dry in here. So that's the first thing. Get yourself a meter. Use your case. Possibly consider a humidifier or dehumidifier if you're getting wild swings. Keep your instrument away from heat vents, heat sources. Don't park your instrument in front of the fireplace. Things like that. That's pretty logical. I, I've told you before that I, I spent many years as a piano tuner, and the pianos that always needed tuning were the ones where they had parked the piano in front of a heat vent. Uh, so don't do that. Uh, let's see. What else do I need to say about humidity? Oh, internal humidifiers. You know, the old-fashioned, the old country boy method was to cut a potato in half and stick it inside your case and close it. And that would, you know, release humidi humidity. It's also food for, you know, bugs and stuff. But you could use an apple, you know. A, cut a, a quarter of an apple and drop it in, in your case. And that will do something. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. You don't want to get sticky apple juice all over the insides of your case. You might get ants in there and who knows what. But they do make little instrument humidifiers. Um... You find them, look, in, look on any music uh, dealer, go to a music store and ask them about them. There's a variety of these things. The only caution that I would give you is if the humidity is normal, don't use them. You don't need them. You don't want to add extra humidity. And follow their instructions carefully. The last thing you want to do is pour a bunch of water into one of these sound hole humidifiers and stuff it in your guitar and let it drip all inside your guitar. That would be very bad. You want the humidifier device to only release water vapor, not liquid water. So you've got to be careful of these things. But people do use them. Uh, they got little green-looking, rope-looking type things that I see people poke down inside their fiddles. Um, there's a variety of these things out there. I don't use them. I, I have never used them. I just rely on the closed case. But again, I live in Georgia. Your situation could be completely different. So consider that and take the advice of an expert about how to use those things. But they do exist if you don't want to humidify or dehumidify your entire house or maybe even just one room. Um, you can consider this because you are affecting the humidity within the case. And by the way, those things only work really good inside closed cases. Um, I guess that's enough talk about humidity. Just something to be aware of. Uh, we are getting into the winter, and I don't want your instrument to get a big old crack in it. But let me say this. If it happens, what do you do? Number one, don't flip out. Because it's very common. There's... there's it's rare to pick up an instrument that has been around for 25 years that hasn't had the, some sort of a crack or seam separation or something repaired over, over the years. It happens. Don't flip out. My advice would be reduce the string tension. You know, don't leave it under tension because you're just inviting it to get worse or to deform the instrument even more. You don't have to completely remove the strings. Just lower them way, way on down. And put the thing in the case and make yourself an appointment with a good luthier who knows what they're doing. 
before you wreck the thing and make it worse. But don't flip out. It's pretty easy. I fixed that the back of that cello in one day. And uh, I don't even think it's all that expensive if you don't let the cracks, if the cracks aren't too extensive. Um, if you do notice a crack, don't put anything on it. Don't get your guitar polish out and start hosing it down with that crack because you're going to get that stuff down in the crack and it's going to prevent a good glue bond later. In other words, don't mess with it. Uh, let, the, let the expert glue it properly. Um, which is another reason to sort of be cautious with the uses of things like oil you put on your fingerboard and guitar polishes and rags and silicone rags and all this stuff. I'm not a big fan of that. You know, I like just a, a piece of a clean old t-shirt will do about as good a job as anything at keeping the gunk off your instrument. But you start spraying it down with pledge and things like this. You're getting that stuff all over the surface, and if you do have some little cracks that you haven't noticed, that's that polish and all that junk is going to seep down in that crack, which is going to make it more difficult to repair, possibly make it impossible to repair, because you may never get glue to properly glue that crack back together. Anyway, that's my advice. Um, take care of your instrument, and hopefully those little mini disasters won't afflict you, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.